Matthew 5, 33-37. It says, Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by, his, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that every word in the Scripture is from you, that it's truth for us even today. That, Father, you desire us to live in such a way that we reflect your holiness and your love and your kindness to the world around us. Lord, may it make a difference in our life today. We give you honor and glory and the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when you first read this, like I said, it's, it's, it's not that difficult. We can figure out what Jesus is saying, but I do want to dig in a little more. As I was thinking about this, we have to understand and kind of backtrack and, and understand where we're at here. Gunnar's already pointed out, you know, we've, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. He's, we're still in the section on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is kind of, everything refers back to verse 20 of chapter 5 where it says, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and so he's talking here specifically in this passage in Matthew 5 that we're dealing with that he's answering the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. Now what was their attitude? Their attitude was that they perfectly kept the law. It was encapsulated, it was, it, was, it, was, it was definitely seen in the attitude that Paul displayed when he was talking about his former life away from Jesus Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.6 that he had perfectly kept the law. Now for those of us who've been raised in Christian circles and all that, we might look at that and say, well obviously, we're all sinners, you didn't do that. But to the Pharisees, and to the way they had viewed the law, and the way they had dissected it in such a way, they truly believed they were keeping the law, and that they were perfect in God's eyes, morally perfect. Jesus came along and said, you have completely misunderstood what the law is saying. And so what did, how did he start this? He said, to those who think they can perfectly keep this law, you scribes and you Pharisees, I'm telling you that... You said, I don't commit murder. But then Jesus comes along and says, well, that's fine. You haven't gone out and knifed somebody to death. But have you hated somebody? Because that's the same thing. And then if that wasn't enough, he comes to another, the other group and he says, you say you haven't committed adultery. And he says, okay, that's fine. So you haven't slept with somebody, not your spouse. Um, have, have you ever lusted after someone? Oh, okay. Well, guess what? You're an adulterer. And he goes on, he deals with, 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 um, he deals, d- deals with divorce and remarriage in that passage. And now he comes to a third section here. We know that it's kind of, he's starting this third thought because he says, again, you have heard. That's kind of the way he sets each of these, each of these thoughts apart. But they're all answering the scribes and Pharisees who in their minds thought they were perfectly keeping the law of God. And Jesus's point is, no, you're not. You cannot be perfect enough to earn God's righteousness because we are all imperfect and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he returns here to this you have heard phrase and he separates this out as a second section. Now what is he addressing here? He's addressing the issue of oath keeping and keeping your word. 
Now, the interesting thing about that I like about this is that the first two are directly in the Ten Commandments. And many times when we think of, okay, what does God require? Well, the Ten Commandments. Uh, when I was in South Carolina, uh, the, the local Baptist Association, the church I was in, they got involved in some huge thing. Let's put Ten Commandments everywhere. I'm not against the Ten Commandments being everywhere. But God's law is a lot more than the Ten Commandments. As Gunner's already pointed out, there's hundreds of laws in the Old Testament. I, you know, he could probably tell you the exact number the scribes said. I didn't bother to look it up. So, um, but there's a lot, 600-some. That's more than 10. Here, he takes a commandment that is one of those that's not part of the Ten Commandments. And in fact, it comes from other verses in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all these. But he's deal, it shows us that God's Jesus' reference point here isn't just the Ten Commandments. It's the entire Old Testament law and how, and how these people viewed it that, that they could actually keep it. And he's saying, no, you can't. The purpose of the law was to show that you're a sinner and you are imperfect at keeping this law. So as I was thinking about this, I thought about, and I, I kind of want to flip things around here and think, okay, so... Okay, we get it. He's telling us that we're supposed to be honorable and stuff, but I kind of wanted to start with kind of thinking about what would the application of this passage be. And if you look at, we understand in that context, okay, he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees who think they can perfectly keep the law, but is there ever any sort of a problem here in our own culture with honesty, integrity, um, doing the right thing? And those timeless truths, we may not have people walking around who say, well, I can perfectly keep the Old Testament law, but I think we have people who might not always keep their word. I think we had a few years ago a president who sat on a stand and, and had to parse the difference between what is is and what the definition of sex is. I think, and, and take him and his party out of the picture, I don't care who it is, any politician you find has sat up and probably told us things that we're sitting there going, yeah, you're going to say one thing and you're going to do another when you get elected. Um, any, if, if you think about, if you've ever signed mortgage papers, the reason that my last house I bought here in Escondido was, I mean, my goodness, California has more mortgage papers. South Carolina was not that big. I get to California. It's like, I don't know, book. Um, but the reason we have to do that, why? It's because I can't just shake the person's hand who I'm buying the house from, hand them, you know, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars and walk away. We can't do that because why? I can't trust that what he's telling me that, yeah, I'm giving you a house that doesn't have, it doesn't have things that are destroying the foundation. It doesn't have problems with the plumbing. It doesn't have this. It doesn't have this. So what do we do? We sign 400 pieces of paper in order to buy a house because we have a problem with keeping our word and we figured out legal ways of forcing people to keep their word. It was interesting to me as I was, as I was looking up some some quotes that people have said about um, people keeping their word and being people of honor. I ran across this from James Cameron, uh, obviously a Hollywood director, uh, you know, director of Terminator, Aliens, Avatar. Um, not necessarily movies at the top of my list, but anyway, he's famous. And he, he's familiar with Hollywood. If you want to think about people of, of who maybe in our society who represent the most about looks and not necessarily um, the, 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 the character behind what they would say would be those in Hollywood a few miles away from us. And he says, I try to live with honor even if it costs me millions of dollars and takes a long time. He says, it's very unusual in Hollywood. 
Few people are trustworthy. A handshake means nothing to them. They feel they're required to keep an agreement with you only if you're successful or if they need you. I've tried not to get sucked into the Hollywood hierarchy system, and I don't like it when people are deferential to me because I'm an established filmmaker. It's just a blue-collar sensibility. And I would say that that's not just Hollywood. Everywhere in our culture, we have you can find people who you would not just trust to shake their hand and hold to their word. And so, as we come into this passage, don't think that this is just Jesus answering some people who lived 2,000 years ago about what they were dealing with and about how perfect they thought they were, because it's also going to affect how we as believers go into the world and how our integrity and our honor and our honesty and trustworthiness is perceived out in the world and how the Lord requires us to deal with the people that we come in contact with. So how does he start this passage? He starts in verse 33 and he says, Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, where does he get this from? The background on this is it comes from, uh, there's a few passages in the Old Testament that kind of deal with this directly. Leviticus 19.12 says this, You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 30 verse 2 says this, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Then we look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 21 and 23. It says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be a sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. All of these passages are dealing very specifically with honor, integrity, honesty. Being some, When you say you're going to do something, you do it. Um, and, and when you swear you're going to do it, when you're promising, when you're making a vow that you're going to do it. Now, when we read these, to me, they seem pretty straightforward. You're expected to, if you tell someone you're going to do something, you do it. And when you take a vow in the Lord's name, and you say, on my honor as a believer, or on God, in God's name, when, same as you go into a courtroom and put your hand on a Bible and raise your hand, you follow through on what you say. It's pretty simple. But here's what's going on in this passage. Because what had happened was, while we would look at that and think, okay, this is a simple sermon. Like Gunnar said, here's the whole sermon. Be people of honor and, and be honest and tell the truth. Unfortunately, when the Pharisees looked at this and said, well, you know, there's some business decisions, though. I'd really like to be able to walk away from if it doesn't go in my favor. And there's some, there's some situations where I'd really like to be able to maybe not totally tell the whole truth because it might make me look bad or it might hurt my career or it might hurt my family. So... Maybe if, and, and so they started parsing these out, and by the time that Jesus is speaking here, they already had come through a thousand years of history, two thousand, multiple hundreds, thousands of years of history, and they had had, they had 63 tracks called the Mishnah on how to keep the law. They devoted an entire tract 
Um, I didn't write down how many pages it was, but it was multiple, multiple pages long on exactly how you kept a vow to the Lord. And what it basically came down to was they went through and they parsed out different things and said, well, if you're facing, um, if, if you're swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem, that's not binding. But if you turn towards Jerusalem and you swear on Jerusalem, now it's binding. So if I'm making a deal with somebody and I make sure that I'm not facing towards Jerusalem and I come up and say, well, yeah, let's, let's make a business deal here. Yeah, this would be good for both of us, you know. I swear by Jerusalem that I'm going to do this for you. Well, that other person, oh, good, I have your promise. You're going to fulfill that. Well, yeah, but what you didn't know is I'm not facing towards Jerusalem and my religious leader tells me I'm fine. So six months from now when it's not going in my way, I'm going to walk out of this contract. Um, and so they had literally sat there and parsed out all of these things to say, well, this is, this is what is legally binding. This is what is not legally binding. And it was all based on how close you got to the name of Yahweh. And, um, and so it, 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 close to God's name. And, and we see a picture of this. As Gunnar said, we're in Matthew. And, and if you go a little further in Matthew, actually it's a lot further. And it's probably you know, a year and a half away from now. But Matthew chapter 23, in Matthew 23, 16 through 22, we, we get a picture of what was happening here when Jesus is again addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and the offering. And by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within the temple, which is God. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And so Jesus was directly addressing this idea where they had taken what was supposed to be such a straightforward, simple thing. Keep your word. Have integrity. And they transformed it. Once again, they had taken the law and made it into a way to actually violate the law. And so Jesus is directly addressing this within them. Now, um, so how does he address this now? So that's the background of why he was saying this. He comes into verse 34 and he says, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now he's almost quoting here directly from Isaiah 66.1. I've noticed that some Bibles put that as a reference. Other ones don't because it may not be a direct quote. But Isaiah 66.1 says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is the place that all may rest? And so what Jesus is saying here is that since Pharisaic Judaism had twisted the Old Testament law that was meant to encourage truthfulness into something that became clever lies and deceit, 
Jesus' answer to this dishonest use of the law, he says, just don't swear at all. Because what you're not understanding is that when you swear, it doesn't matter what you swear by, God already owns it. He's saying, you know, when you make that oath by heaven, that we, you know, as I pointed out before, they said if you swear by heaven, that doesn't, that's not binding. But who owns heaven? Who created heaven? God did. So it's his anyway. They, they were forgetting the fact that God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over every person. You know, if I swear by myself, we think, oh, well, the God, we take God out of the picture now. Really? Did I have a, do I have a way to make this little bit of tiny gray hair that's getting worse since I had Bradley? Um, uh, do I have a way to make it turn, turn, turn blonde again? I wish. Let me just will it to be blonde. Oh, it didn't work. Okay. Um, you know, we don't even control the color of our hair. God does that. And so ultimately, everything that we can promise or swear or affirm or say that we're going to, to, to stamp that seal that we can be a trustworthy person, God already owns it. And if we try to sit here and say, well, I didn't really mean that, I can't really do that, we're doing exactly what the Pharisees did. He owns everything. And as believers, we are expected to be people whose word can be trusted. And he explains his reasoning by that no matter what you choose to swear on, it's related to God anyway, since everything was created by God and everything belongs to him. So what's the answer then? Is, he, is the answer just, okay, well, I better never make a promise again? Well, that's dumb. Obviously, we have to tell people we're going to do things. The answer is what he gives us in verse 37. He says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is evil. So what is he saying here? That the law requires us to be men and women of our word. That's simply it. He's telling us that when we tell somebody we're going to do something, we, we say, yes, I'll do that for you. That's it. Yes, I'll do it for you. When we say, no, I can't do that, we have to be honest and say, no, I can't do that. And then we fulfill that promise too, and we and we and we and we stand by it. Um, we're not supposed to be. It's supposed to be very straightforward, and and it should not require an oath of us to fulfill it. We should be able to walk into a courtroom and walk up to the judge and say, "Judge, you don't even need to hand me the Bible and raise my hand because I'm just going to shake your hand right here and just tell you that I'm going to tell the truth." Now, I doubt he's going to let you do that. That's probably not going to happen. He's probably still going to say, well, I kind of want you to like be on record that you're going to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. Um, I, I kind of, this morning, I don't know if you saw on Facebook, but Gunnar was real quick to put that he had a lot of knowledge of Little House on the Prairie. Because I, one thing that comes to my mind is like, what he's telling us here is, and I remember my grandfather, like, I mean, he, he died when he was like 80 something. He's been dead many years now, but I know he was born like sometime 1912, 13, somewhere on there. But he, uh, he, I remember him you know, and, and most of his generation. They would be like, man, today, like, we can't trust anybody. I could just walk in and shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye, and I'd know that that was a, that was a promise that was going to be kept. And uh, when I, to me, like, obviously, I didn't grow up in those days. I'm not that old. But, um, but I think of a little house in the prairie, and, uh, and, you know, you had Charles Ingalls and, 
And, uh, and, and I remember there's several episodes, and no, don't ask me to name them. Gunner can, though. He's good. And, um, and probably Anna, too. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, apparently Grace. He said Grace is really good at this stuff. But um, I remember in Little House in the Prairie, you know, they go through some times that are hard, and they don't have money to go buy food. So what does he do? He goes down to the Olsen store, and he walks in, and, and, and he just goes up to Mr. Olsen, and, and as long as Mrs. Olsen is around, because she doesn't really like him very much, and and, and as long as it's just him and Mr. Olson, he can walk in there and say, you know what, I've got a field in the, that's coming up in the hay, and I'm going to harvest it, and then I'm going to make the money, and I'll pay you back. And, uh, and I've got this, and I, I remember at some point he actually builds like a log, uh, the, a wood shed or something, and he does woodworking, and he's like, well, I'm going to sell this stuff, and then I'll have money to pay you. And what do they do? Oh, here's uh, 50 pages. We want you to sign this. Let me make sure you can give you a credit card. Let me make sure we can open you a line of credit. No. He shakes his hand and said, I know you're good for it, Charles. Here's the food you need. Just go take it. Let Carolyn come in and get it. Now, what do you think would happen if you walked down to Vaughn's today and uh, just walked in there and walked up to the manager and said, you know what? I do work a job, and I'm a little behind this month, but I'm going to get a paycheck on the 15th. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, would you be good? I'm just going to go take some stuff out of the store right now, and I promise you on the 15th I'm going to come back here with some cash and just pay it for you. He's probably going to look at you and be like, uh, we'll be happy to maybe do a credit card application for Yvonne's credit card, but no, that's not going to happen. And so, but, but as a believer, what he's saying is you should be able to live a lifestyle where your life and your word could be trusted to that extent. So that no one, while obviously in our culture we're still going to do it, no one should have to have you sign 50 pages just to say, I will pay this mortgage on time every month because you've agreed to give me this much money and pay for this house. That's the kind of people we are called to be. Now, what is this passage not saying? There's a uh, Jehovah's Witnesses um, still to this day, and I wouldn't agree with any of their theology, but one of the things they do teach is that this passage is saying you should never take an oath. That, so if you, they go to court, they're going to absolutely ref, they're not going to put their hand on the Bible. They will affirm that they will tell the truth, but they will never swear to tell the truth. Um, Anabaptists historically, which we may proceed from, but we're not really um, the so the Mennonites, people like that, they're not going to swear on a Bible in courtroom, and they're not going to say I swear. Why is that? Because they've looked at this passage and they say, well, it means Jesus on the surface is saying, don't swear, don't take a name of an oath. Um, and, and just don't do it. And so that's the way that it's been interpreted. I, I, I was a rec- uh, as, when I was a Marine, I had a, um, I had, I was also a, the career pa- planner for a while, and I had one Marine, and we were allowed to do this, but most of them didn't care. But I had one Marine who came up to me and said, "I'm not gonna swear. I will affirm it, but I'm not gonna swear, and I'm not gonna say so. Help me, God, in the oath uh, when you when I get reenlisted." So I went in and had to manually typewrite. X's over, so help me God, and manually typewrite, I swear out, and type in, I affirm. Um, and Because that was his belief. And he, he was a Christian, and I do believe he was, but that was the way he read this passage. Now, is that what it's saying? Well, I hope not, because um, it was just interesting that I had to preach on this passage this week, because Saturday, not Saturday, Friday, I actually finally pinned on Lieutenant Commander for the Navy Reserve. And um, as part of that, um, for like the ninth time now, I had to swear back, swear into the Navy or uh, take my oath again. 
And, and what we say for that is, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. Now, was I, did I sin by saying that? I hope not, because I've done it like nine times now. Every one of you that's ever served in here has taken that oath a bunch. If you're a police officer, you've probably signed something to the similar, similar effect. And so are we all sinning and violating God's law when we do this? I don't think so. Here's the reasons why this passage really doesn't teach that. Number one, contextually we've already seen that Jesus' purpose here is to stress the true intention of the Old Testament. These people were swearing on a lot of different things, but they weren't following through with their word because they had managed to twist God's word into their own shape. And we can never twist God's word to fit what we want it to say. God said what it said, and he intended it to say what he said, and we have to follow it. And so, and so they were twisting God's word, <clears throat> and Jesus comes along and said, no, the point of the Old Testament was just to walk, act with integrity. And so he's not saying the Old Testament was wrong when it said, take an oath. He's simply saying, you've misunderstood it completely, and it would be better for you to never swear an oath if you're just going to try to get yourself out of it because you're sinning by doing that. It's interesting that God himself is spoken of as swearing a promise. In, um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 27 through 31, it says, Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay, you have made it known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. In that passage, he, the writer of Luke and the writer of Acts is hearkening back to um, to David of having of of the reason that he he's speaking of the Davidic covenant there, where Jesus came to David and said, "There will be a ruler of yours that will rule on the throne of Israel forever," and the, and ultimately it was fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus Christ. And the reason that David could trust that is because it says here that God came to David and swore. Now, what did God swear on? God swore on himself. He said, David, I'm God, and you can trust my promise because I am swearing as the God of the universe, as Yahweh, that you can trust what I am going to say. And so it says David believed him, and David trusted him. Now, I'm sure... As the, as the Israelites got into the period long after David, into the period of the, uh, of the prophets, and they've been taken out of Israel, they're out of Israel, they're out of Judah, other countries are ruling them, there's no king on the throne, and they're sitting there going, where is this king? It doesn't look like God has kept his promise. But then what happens? We come to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and we find out that it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The, the Lion of Judah, out of the line of David, who has been the promised Messiah, who shows up in the world, 
not to sit on a throne at that time, but that we are promised who will come back and sit on that throne and be the ruler of the entire world, not just the nation of Israel. And so ultimately, David's promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if God himself swears and keeps his promises, then we are expected to be people who when we give our word on something, we should be people who will keep it. The, other, the last reason, and it's a little bit iffier, um, is just the nature of Christ's preaching here. Christ is using a style that like, I mean, you, I wouldn't probably want to do it because it would sound like I'm disagreeing with the Bible and I wouldn't want to do that. But he's God and he can do what he wants. And so he, he's using a style of preaching here in the Sermon on the Mount that almost contradicts itself. And, and so he started off by saying, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you. And in reality, if we took it at face value and said, Jesus is saying, never swear at all. Don't sign any oaths. Don't, don't go into court. Don't put your hand on a Bible. Don't do this. Then he's actually telling us to literally violate the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is still God's word. And so we come to Deuteronomy 6.13 and it actually says here, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. So they were actually told you are supposed to take promises in God's name. It's required of you for certain things. I'm sure it wasn't just the average, yeah, hon, I promised to go get some towels from the store. I promised to pick up some, I promised to pick up this grocery on my way home because, man, I, I would, I am never going to swear on that promise. But, um, you know, but they were pr- told when you go into court, you know, they had the same, they didn't have a thousand page legal documents, but they did have promises they made to God before other people, before even their judges and their courts. And they were required to keep those promises. And once again, it comes down to the fact that Jesus isn't contradicting the law, but he's giving a fuller understanding as his teaching fulfills it. And so it's interesting to me as as we... So what is it saying? If it's not saying don't take an oath ever, the bottom line is it's saying that we are supposed to be people of integrity, that our words should be trusted. We live in a litigious society that looks for every reason to get out of keeping their, their word. If you're an insurance company, you're finding a reason not to pay me when I, when I get in an accident. I'm, if you work for an insurance company, that's fine. But, uh, <laughs> you, but seriously, if I, and if I was writing those insurance policies, you're right. I would not be wanting to pay you out a million dollars even if you rated it. I'd find some way to say you didn't, you didn't rate that money. We find reasons to get out of agreements that we've made with other people. Well, this doesn't really fit my circumstances now. I just want to do this. and I, you know, I, I don't really want to pay this back, so let's just find a way out of it. Is there a loophole? Is there some way that I can read between the lines here? We live in a society that's all about doing that. We as believers are supposed to be the opposite of that. And it's extremely important to our relationship with God and and, and our relationship with others in this world. It's interesting that in James chapter 5, in James chapter 5, James actually quotes, almost quotes Jesus from Matthew and puts it into James. And he's, he's finished up the book of James. And if you know anything about James, Martin Luther called the book, it's a right spurious book because he didn't like it. 
He said he, he wondered if it should even be included in the Bible because when you read the book of James, if you don't know anything else about the Bible, you can walk away from James, and if you misunderstand it, you're going to walk away saying, oh, well, my salvation depends on me getting out there and doing the best I can and working hard, and, 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 I, and man, I have to like, work to earn my salvation. That, that's what Martin Luther read into the book of James. Um, that's not what it means, but that's what he read. And, and so when, when James is talking about how our Christian life is supposed to be lived in the world, and he comes to James chapter 5 as he ends up these wonderful passages. He talks about the tongue. He talks about your tongue is a world of iniquity. You need to watch what you say, how you say it, how you treat others. Then he comes to James chapter 5, and in verse 12 he says this, but above all, now if I say above all, that means this is more important this is of greater benefit to you and more important to your Christian walk than anything I've already said. He says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. At the end of everything else he says, he brings honor and honesty and integrity to the forefront of the Christian life. And James says, if there's one thing I want you to take away from everything else I've said in this book, it's that when you walk out in the world and you present yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, people should know one thing about you, that they can trust your word. That if someone knows you, they should be able to look you in the eye and you should say, I promise that what you're going to hear from me now is the truth and they shouldn't have any, you sign any document. You shouldn't have to put your hand on a Bible. You shouldn't have to do anything because they know that you are a person who can be trusted to tell the truth. That's a high standard. That's a much higher standard than a legal standard. That's a much higher standard than, than, than what most of us would hold ourselves to. And I, and, and, and I don't think most of us have thought about just how high a standard that is. There are so many situations where we find ourselves in where it's easier to just not tell the truth. It's just easier to just let it slide or, or, or give the wrong impression, even though you know you may not be exactly lying, but you can justify it in your head because ultimately it'll turn out all right. But were you fully being a person of integrity when you did that? Your word should be of such trustworthiness that there's no need to take an oath in court for it to be trusted. This applies to every area of life. Obviously, the first thing that comes into play is, in, in my mind, is business. If we own a business and we do business out in town and stuff and we tell people we're going to do something, we have to abide by it. And yes, that doesn't mean we don't sign contracts. That doesn't mean that we don't make sure we're legally taking care of ourselves and our families. But that does mean that sometimes, maybe, we go beyond what the legal requirement is to make sure that we've taken care of the ethical requirement. And, 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 and then it goes even into your personal life. Are we treating the people closest to us, our family, our friends, with integrity, with honor, being truthful with them, keeping our word, keeping our promises? 
And then it goes into our spiritual life. And spiritually, you know, it becomes really easy for us to say things. And I don't, I don't want to take it too far because some things we say are just, um, are just, uh, they're just that. There's something we say and, 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 and most of the time we do intend to do them. But, but even like simple things, like we tell someone we're going to pray for them. Do you really pray for them? Or are you just saying that because you want to be nice? You don't want to really give the answer like, you know what, to be honest, in 24 hours I'm going to forget you told me this. So, um, but you don't want to say that, so you say, sure, I'll be praying for that. Um, and, and that's why, you know, even on, I've, I've, I've started on, if I tell somebody I'm praying for them on Facebook, and this is not to make myself sound good, it's just because I caught myself doing it a lot, is I pray for them right then, and I just say, I've prayed for this. That, I'm not going to pray for it 24, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to pray for it 24 hours from then. I've prayed for it right then when I tell them that I've prayed for it. Because then I can at least keep my integrity between me and God that I've, I've done what I promised that person I would do. Um, and yeah, it may not make you sound as spiritual sometimes if, you, if you're more honest about what you're actually doing and not doing. But we are commanded to be people of integrity. And that is more important than how we look to other people. In a job, it might mean that you lose a job. It was interesting that um, me and I was talking to a lady after church uh, at, after the first service and she was bringing up uh, a client that paid a lot of her bills and um, because he wanted her to be dishonest and she had to walk away from the client after 10 years and it cost her quite a bit of money and the Lord brought other clients in though to fill that gap. Um, years ago, and I'm not proud of this, but I I was I was I, I I was a recruiter for like a year. I was a recruiter's aide, actually. I wasn't a recruiter in the Marine Corps, but I was a recruiter's aide. So I was doing active duty for a long time, and I was helping the recruiter. There was, and eventually he got fired. So I was actually doing a lot of the paperwork myself. And um, but one of the reasons they finally told me get off active duty or go to recruiter school and be a full time recruiter for three years. And I I told them I said I can't do this anymore because honestly my my integrity is more important than a paycheck at this point. And I was so uh, what the things I was doing and the things I was telling people to tell other people in order to get them in the Marine Corps was not the most honest things in the world. And I, and I realized that, and it, ca- it actually caused an internal struggle for me. And it wasn't that I wasn't a believer. I was a believer, I f- but I felt like that was what the job demanded, even if it wasn't. But I felt like it was, and I had to, I, I had to turn them down. And there's so many situations like that where it's just easier to just do what everybody else is doing. And it's just easier to go with the flow. But as a believer, we are commanded to let our yes be yes and our no be no and to not go beyond that. To simply be people that when we, in our dealings, we have integrity and honor and honesty with the people that we are talking to. I think Paul wraps it up well in the attitude we're supposed to have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4-2, Paul lays it out when he says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. When I think of that, I think of the Pharisees who were, who were taking the word of God and saying, Well, if I twist it this way, I can swear by this, and then I can do whatever I want. That's craftiness and adulterating the word of God. He goes on and he says, But by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 
every person we come in contact with, if they know nothing else about us, should know we're a person of integrity. Once again in this passage, we're confronted by the fact that God's standard of holiness, as Jesus delineates, is far, far higher than our standard. And it's far higher than our twisting of his of of what the law requires and what and what God's standard is to make it fit into our life and appear to be holy. Every one of these restatements of the law is wrapped up in the way Jesus closes this passage, and we'll get to it in a few weeks, when he says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And every time that gunner has been preaching these sermons, and every time as I've been preparing this sermon, and I look at that verse because it does go with this passage, I don't care what topic it is. I might be able to look at my life today and say, oh good, I'm a person of integrity. I can be trusted. Okay, have you always been? Did you ever have any anger? Oh yeah. Have you ever looked at another woman to lust after her that wasn't your wife? Oh yeah. You failed. I've failed. We're commanded to be perfect. The problem is we can't. But here's the best news of all. The person that was defining the law for us and showing us what the standard is, is the same person that we go to to find the law fulfilled within us. Jesus Christ didn't just raise the standard and say, here's the standard, you're a failure and you can't keep it. He raised the standard and said, you're a failure, you can't keep it, but I'm fully human, and from the day I was born, I never lied. I never committed adultery. I never looked at another woman to lust after her. I never, I never stole anything from anybody. I never was angry with sin at another human being. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died as an absolutely perfect human being because he was also fully God at the same time. And when they put him to death on that cross, he took every failure of mine and every failure of yours, every time we've sinned, every time we have not perfectly been as honest and as, as, as trustworthy as what we should, and it was nailed to the cross with him. And all we have to do is look at Jesus Christ and place our faith in what he did for us on the cross. And when we do that, we are forgiven for all of those times that we failed. We are forgiven for every sin we've ever committed And we're given a new life and a new hope and a new birth through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's the hope that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. That yes, we don't keep it perfectly, but Jesus Christ did. And he's the one that's teaching and he's the one that is the Savior and he's our Savior. And he can be your Savior today if you don't know him. And for those of us who continue to live here knowing Jesus Christ... The promise is that when Jesus left, he said, I'm going to give you someone called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. And so it's not your strength that you go through life trying to keep these rules and saying, oh man, like the Pharisees and saying, oh, I can do this. Okay, I've got to make sure that I'm splitting hairs and doing all this right. And I've got to keep, no, it's letting the Holy Spirit work in your life. Having him shape your conscience and shape your reactions, and shape your words, and shape your actions until you reflect the holiness of God. But it's not because of your holiness. It's because of His. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come today as imperfect people. Every one of us, Lord, has failed to follow your law. 
And Lord, through your son, Jesus Christ, you have provided us forgiveness and freedom from that sin. You had your perfect son pay the price for every wrong thing that we had ever done. Father, we can't thank you enough. We ask that you would let us live within that promise that your Holy Spirit would indwell us and fill us and empower us for the life that you have called us to live here on earth. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.